from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast It was the 2012 Delhi gang rape that changed things Till the outrage over the case spilled onto the streets, India had a fairly straightforward way of dealing with juveniles in conflict with the law. That's the term used to describe people below the age of 18 who are listed as accused in criminal cases. In the Delhi case, what outraged people was the fact that one of the accused was a minor, that is, he was less than 18 years of age. As per the law at the time, he was to serve around 3 years in a rehabilitation center and then be released. At the same time, the five other accused in the case were in jail. One of them died by suicide and the five others were hanged to death in 2020. After his term in the rehabilitation center, the juvenile was released to a secret location in 2015. But following the case, the laws for juveniles caught in criminal cases underwent a massive overhaul. As Swagata Raha, our guest on today's episode explains, we shifted from wanting the rehabilitation of juveniles to wanting to punish them. Since then, in multiple cases, juveniles have been told to stand trial as adults. These cases range from the Kathua gang rape to the Gurgaon school murder where one student is accused of having murdered another. Swagata, who is the director of research at the Bengaluru-based Enfold Proactive Health Trust, explains the many problems with this new attitude. In today's episode, she explains how the laws are loaded against juveniles and why we need to change how we rehabilitate juveniles in conflict with the law instead of planning the harshest punishments for them. Swagata could you start by explaining what our existing policy is towards juveniles who are involved in criminal cases and how much did the 2012 case change things There is a rich history within India mm. on juvenile justice mm. which has consistently recognized that children are different from adults and mm. that children cannot be held to the same standards of accountability mm. this is something that we've recognized more than 100 years uh, back in 1919 1920 mm. there was a jail committee that was constituted and the conclusion that it arrived at is that a child who comes into you know crime mm. is actually a product of an unfavorable social uh, circumstance mm. and is also a child who can be reformed mm. and the conclusion at that point in time was that prison is not the place for such children mm. since then we've seen a, you know a, an array of laws come into uh, the indian legal space which have recognized that children have to be tried uh, dealt with differently mm. and it stems from the fundamental belief that children can change so uh, this is the point in time when the juvenile justice law was overhauled mm. and a new system was created based on which if you are above 16 years of age and below 18 mm. years of age mm. and you are accused of an offence that is for, uh, under the category of a heinous offence mm. which means that it carries punishment with you know minimum imprisonment of 7 years or more mm. then there is a possibility of that child being tried as an adult mm. child can also be punished as an adult then mm. that this child cannot be sentenced to death mm. or to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole mm. so the 2012 uh, incident in fact was a turning point in mm. the history of juvenile justice so 
uh, one thing with the fact that you mentioned that India's had this rich history of sort of treating children differently. Uh, did it stand out in that sense? Or was that kind of the norm that is slowly changing even globally? So it did stand out in, in two ways. Uh, one, of course, in the Indian jurisprudence has developed, you know, even before internationally, there were instruments that recognized the rights of children in conflict with the law. And we even went one step further where we said that, you know, no form of imprisonment is appropriate for children. So until this law came into existence, the new law came into existence, there was no possibility of imprisonment. No matter what the nature of the crime, be it murder, be it rape, the child would only be dealt with within the juvenile justice system. And there would there, there are a series of rehabilitative dispositions that were available. So it ranged from counseling, uh, community service, probation, and the maximum that one could put a child in a, a confined space is three years. And that also is from the point of view of ensuring the child's rehabilitation. It's not for the purpose of punishment. Globally, where do we stand? What we have to look at is the normative standards uh, laid down by the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. This has been accepted by all countries in the world except the United States. And what the jurisprudence under this particular convention tells us is that when it comes to heinous offenses or serious offenses, the law cannot discriminate against children based on their age. And the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has told all countries that, you know, if you have a law that tells that based on the age of the child and the type of offense, you can treat them as adults, that is falling foul of the UN Convention. They are being singled out simply based on, you know, their age and the kind of offense that they have been accused of. And how well enforced was this system, say, prior to 2012 in terms of ensuring that minors were sort of kept separately and had the rights where they would not face the adult criminal system? I would say that the implementation has been patchy. There have been many instances where children have been treated as adults, uh, even though, you know, uh, there has been a doubt about their age. And then years later, somebody along the line has discovered that they are uh, children and then, you know, tried to take corrective measures. There have been cases before the Delhi High Court as well, where the NCPCR, you know, went into Tihar and then found there were so many children in Tihar who had been uh, treated as adults and were under trial prisoners and they had to be then moved back. This continues even till today. Even for younger children, sometimes they are shown as adults and pushed into the adult system. Now, the thing is, the quality of legal representation is so poor for these children. They're mostly coming from families that do not have the means to engage with the system. So recently we had this case where a 12-year-old was charged with rioting in Madhya Pradesh as a result of a change in law. Uh, with juveniles, we've like you said, post the 2012 case, we've really come to this view that if you're involved in a crime, even if you're juvenile, you're fit to stand trial because you willingly got involved in the crime. Um, you've argued against this for years now. How often do you see this happening with minors uh, in terms of them being classified as adults and then, you know, facing the legal system? 
in the course of our interaction with people within the system, we are seeing this growing uh, anger, frustration towards children in conflict with the law, this sense that children are maturing earlier than before and believing that, you know, because they have access to mobiles, they have access to the internet, that they know better, they should know better, and therefore they should face the same consequences that an adult would. Just responding to the example that you shared of the 12-year-old, if you as a 12-year-old who, uh, you know, is allegedly involved in any form of rioting, the question is that who has, you know, this 12-year-old, has he woken up one day on his own and decided that this is what he needs to do? Or has he been motivated uh, and used by adults around him to do something like that? And that is an offense. So if he has been used in that way, he's a victim. But here he's being seen as someone who is an aggressor, who has initiated this and should therefore, you know, have to pay whatever that amount of compensation uh, that the MP law requires. It's a question of, you know, from whose perspective are we really looking at this entire situation? Do we have the sense that a child could have been, uh, you know, could have been abused by adults and be put placed in a situation like this where he or she or they are coming in conflict uh, with the law? Here is something that although I'm a lawyer, but, you know, done some amount of uh, reading on this and spoken to various people in the mental health space. And what we understand today is that maturity is not just cognitive maturity. It is not just about, you know, how they're able to access information, how they dress, uh, or how they're able to uh, intelligently answer questions. There is an element of psychosocial maturity as well. And that is a function of time. Uh, there is also the aspect of neurobiological developments. And there is now enough science that tells us that the adolescent brain is still evolving. So the prefrontal cortex that is responsible for planning, decision-making, how you look at risk and reward is not yet developed. And that really explains why adolescents, particularly those between 16 to 18, are more likely uh, to be you know, uh, susceptible to peer influence, more likely to take risky uh, decisions or make risky choices, lack impulse control and therefore you know find themselves in situations where they come in conflict with the law so now when you are at vulnerable from the point of view of your neurobiological development can we then say that they should be held to the same standards of accountability as adults would that be fair to them would that not offend their constitutional rights of you know uh, equality and the fact that they also deserve equal protection of the law so i think what we see is a very commonplace understanding of maturity. And we find that public opinion seems to uh, sway over how, how these cases get decided or how the law should now respond to what the public feels is right or wrong. And that that can be very dangerous because it, it, it will just lead to the whittling of these standards. We've already seen it come down to 16. And with situations like this, the manner in which they are reported uh, there is sometimes we hear people say, no, it should be lower. So what are the issues with minors when they are categorized as adults and then are kind of thrown into the adult criminal legal system? I think there are several uh, challenges here. One is, of course, first and foremost, they lose the entire protection that is available to a child in conflict with the law who is dealt with within the juvenile justice system. 
let's take a 15 year old child now if a 15 year old child is accused of murder or rape that child is going to be dealt with squarely within the juvenile justice system post enquiry bills that can be passed have to be focused only on this child's rehabilitation and reintegration uh, the child's uh, criminal record cannot be held against this child it has to be destroyed now if this child were to be 16 this child can be tried as an adult and when it means that you are tried as an adult you will have to go through a criminal trial just like any other adult so uh, what is your understanding of legal procedures do you understand the right privilege against self incrimination that you have and there are studies from other jurisdictions which tell us that adolescents have a very poor understanding of their own rights and very often waive their own constitutional rights because they are not aware of what the consequences are and the consequences are severe so if this child has shared incriminating information that is then used against the child uh, and can result in long lengthy uh, prison terms that there will be a permanent record that record is not going to go away and that is going to impede that child's reintegration in future so 10 years down the line you are released from prison or you are released from a place of safety that record you are going to carry for the rest of your life you have to declare that wherever you go second the whole aspect of equality every child by virtue of your identity as a child you are entitled to protection under law it does not mean that you will not be held accountable yes you will be held accountable but within the frame of the juvenile justice system but here what we have done is we've made a distinction between those who are 16 and above and those who are below 16 at the same time we are saying if you are above 16 you are like an adult your culpability is the same as an adult we give you a few concessions in that we will not sentence you to death or we will not uh, sentence you to life in prison without the possibility of parole so there is a conflation here of an adolescent with an adult and then there is a distinction that is being made within the uh, category of children saying okay if you are above 16 you have that uh, maturity so that does not have any connection with the purpose of the law but is that distinction furthering the objective of the law if the objective of the law is rehabilitation and reintegration in what way is this distinction advancing that objective can we say that this is in the best interest of children that they be tried as adults how can we justify it then there's also the aspect of the presumption of innocence uh, which is a central tenet of the criminal justice system how does this uh, transfer system that's been created under the jj act work it works on the assumption that okay you have done this and now let's figure out do you have the capacity to do it is your maturity the same as that of an adult did you understand the consequences of the offense and what were the circumstances of the offense so you are moving with the assumption that this child has done it and then i'm going to figure out whether you had maturity or you didn't so there is a complete violation of the presumption of innocence then there is a violation of the privilege against self incrimination because how do you arrive at whether or not he understood the consequences of the offense the questions that are asked of these children are incriminating this child does not have any awareness that i can refuse to answer this question because say the child does not answer the questions the child says no i or, or you know gives uh, evasive answers that is also held against him to say that well look he knows he's he's manipulative he knows enough to uh, you know try and hoodwink us and therefore he has maturity as an adult and therefore should be transferred you see there is just no way 
that a child can uh, go through this process in a manner that will ensure that the child's rights are respected. It boils down to that individual JJB's perceptions of that child makes it exceedingly subjective and arbitrary. There's also no tool available that can tell us whether this child has maturity like an adult or not. No tool, nowhere in the world. How are you then saying, based on an IQ test, that okay, his IQ is normal, therefore his capacity is that of an adult. An IQ test is not meant uh, to measure whether or not you can commit an offense. And we've also seen examples where the, uh, the, the child is tested on GQ, who is the Prime Minister of India, who is the President of India. You know, how many zeros are there in one lakh? These are the kinds of questions that children are asked to uh, judge their capacity. No element of, you know, saying, okay, we will have guidelines or we will create a new Indian tool to, uh, you know, judge whether this child is mature or not. It is not going to take away from the fact that this entire process is inherently discriminatory. It's absolutely arbitrary. It depends on the whims of the, uh, the Juvenile Justice Board concerned. If you are undergoing such a test as a child, would you have a lawyer with you or would you be on your own? That's a very good question because most of these children do not have any legal representation at this stage. And many uh, boards don't even think it is necessary for them to be represented at this stage. We've seen cases, in fact, one of the first cases was from Madhya Pradesh, incidentally, where these two boys were sent to the adult system, and then they were sentenced to life. That is when it was reported in the media. And when we looked at their records, we realized they were asked a bunch of incriminating questions. They did not have any legal representation. The legal representation was made available to them on the date on which they were transferred. So they did not have any lawyer advising them as to how they should you know, participate in this process. And many JJBs are also of the view that they do not need access to the report. So even, for instance, the Prince case, and this went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the lawyer on behalf of Bholu, who is the child in conflict with the law, was given, when he asked for it, he was given access to the mental health assessment report and was just given barely a few minutes before the uh, arguments were to begin to look at that report. And when it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said that this is not how this process should be done. He is entitled to that report. All these documents that the JJB is going to rely on have to be made available to the child in conflict with the law. He should also be able to cross-examine that uh, mental health expert who has been consulted as to on what basis have you arrived at your conclusion? What tests have you used? Are these tests for children? Are these tests for adolescents? What, can, what conclusions can we draw from these uh, test results? But as, as you can see, this is an evolving space and there's very little clarity on what their rights are, how it should be uh, enforced during this process, and also the implications of this entire process on the presumption of innocence, privilege against incrimination, uh, as well as the right to equality. You mentioned the mental health expert with the JJB who would evaluate such a person. Is there consistency in that aspect? Is there a discrepancy then across states also in terms of how we evaluate children in conflict with the law? Absolutely. There is wide uh, discrepancy in what methods are adopted. First is 
that this entire aspect of mental capacity for the purpose of committing a crime is a legal fiction. What I mean by that is that in, say, the domain of mental health or uh, adolescent psychology, there is no such concept. They are service providers with a view to advance mental health or they are able to evaluate a child and say, okay, this is where the child needs an intervention or probably that this child does not have any mental illness and does not require intervention. That is the purpose with which mental health uh, practitioners have been working with children. It's not used to determine whether or not this child has capacity to commit a crime. So now you are calling upon them to make such an assessment. So it's very confusing for uh, mental health practitioners in India. What are, being, what are we being called upon to do? Because we've not been taught how to do this. There's no syllabus on this. Uh, there are no tools available. And there is also a dearth of mental health professionals with the experience of working with children in difficult circumstances. It's worth looking at how many child psychologists does India have? How many child psychiatrists do we have? And within that group, how many of them have actually dealt with children? It's very different when you're talking about a school counselor versus a, a counselor who's actually dealing with children who are coming into the justice system. The vulnerabilities are absolutely different. The situations in which they're coming are very different. So we don't have adequate number of you know, professionals. And more importantly, they do not have uh, the tools that will help them make such an assessment. There is another big problem. We realize there are huge delays. So here is a child who has come in today, accused of an offense. He is now probably being assessed after six months, after a year, sometimes after two years. And now the mental health expert is asked to determine whether this boy had the capacity to commit this offense two years ago, whether he understood what the consequences of the offense uh, was two years ago. So you're talking to a 20-year-old trying to figure out what he understood when he was 17. Is that even possible? And what conclusions can you arrive at? There is so much change that one is going through, you know, uh, physiologically as well as emotionally, neurobiologically, that even within a six-month period, there's a, a enormous change that has happened. So how do you then say that this child had has an understanding, does not have an understanding retrospectively. A lot of this comes from our belief that there's no scope for reformation of juveniles. A lot of this anger directed at juveniles in conflict with law comes from that place. Is there any assessment for how successful these reform systems that exist for juveniles are? I think it is contingent on the kind of investment we make in these rehabilitation systems. So that's the question to ask. How much have we really invested in, you know, ensuring that rehabilitation is meaningful? Uh, where are the resources, you know, driven towards making sure trained staff are available? Programs are designed to address uh, the kind of risks and vulnerabilities we are seeing in these children. Uh, where are the de-addiction centers for children in India? What kinds of vocational training uh, opportunities are available for children? There's very little all over India. You know, there, there are stray examples and that's what they are. So in terms of where we are able to consolidate and say that the rehabilitation has been effective, uh, I can give you the example of, say, ECHO in Bangalore. 
which runs the special home uh, here. And the special home is where children in conflict with the law who are found to have committed an offense are sent. And they have been able to create two successful programs. One is their uh, traffic police training program, and the other is their hotel management program, where they've been able to, you know, reintegrate uh, the children who are uh, exiting from the juvenile justice system after they complete their term uh, into these programs. It's a well-conceived, well-designed program. It tells us what is possible, but this is run by a non-governmental organization. Now, what kinds of investments are there in the other states to ensure the rehabilitation of children in conflict with the law? Most of these institutions are understaffed, overburdened, underpaid, uh, lack, lack counselors who are trained. Uh, how do you run a home in these circumstances? It's very challenging. And these children present a lot of trauma, a lot of challenges in terms of the kind of lives they have lived. So they need a lot of care and attention. Unless we make those investments, we cannot blame the children for, for having failed them as a state, as a society, as a community. So we should ask, like, you know, what have we done towards ensuring the rehabilitation of these children? After the 2012, do you think there's been that sort of shift where even perceptionally, it's kind of gone against juveniles where we are fundamentally a more angry society towards juveniles who fall afoul of the law? I think this sense of anger and outrage we are seeing uh, across the board in terms of against children as well as when it comes to sexual violence against women and children, where there is this whole cry for death penalty, cry for more stringent punishment. All of this is, in fact, reflective of the symptoms that we see. We are not looking at the root causes. Why is it that we are seeing young people, uh, you know, getting involved in, uh, say, sexual violence or getting involved in cases of murder? Why is it that crimes against women and children uh, are brutal in nature, increasing or being reported more? So... We are happy with quick, quick solutions. And these are not solutions. Our understanding is that if we hang someone instantly, shoot them instantly, no need for a trial, that's to be celebrated. Or that's our idea of justice. And the media is also fueling it in some sense, the kind of cinema that we see. There is also this othering that has happened, that us versus them. You know, people who do these kinds of acts are despicable, not civil, barbarians, you know, beasts, animals, these are the kinds of terms that we see being used even against children, that they do not deserve to uh, live. So we have to really reflect as to where we are in terms of our perception of crime, our perception of justice, and what the implications of this form of justice. It's quick justice. Okay, fine, we will put them away. They're not going to be there forever. They will come out one day. And when they come out of those systems, are they going to be reformed or are they going to be extremely embittered individuals with a lot of rage and anger? And how is that going to uh, tell upon society 20 years down the line? Are we going to be safer? So I think some of these notions have to be challenged as to you know what, what really is the purpose of law, what is the purpose of justice, and whether public outrage can uh, you know be the uh, factor that eclipses everything else. I just want to ask about this Gurgaon case, the one that you mentioned, the Bholu case. Um, did that 
sort of come as a sort of outlier in our belief system because we like to believe that it's a sort of it's another class of child who is this animal this barbarian and when you had this happening in this posh city you suddenly were forced to question what you thought would be a juvenile in conflict with law i think so of course the gurgaon case is a heartrending case you know a life has been lost and in very tragic circumstances i think what happens in the gurgaon case is at least you see that this child has access to legal representation and has the ability to go all the way up to the supreme court to actually litigate every aspect of preliminary assessment we realize that most of our children do not have access to this kind of legal aid and support which is why they accept the decision that is made they are languishing in jail they are being handed out heavy sentences without any uh, and they've just resigned themselves to that fate but what you've said in terms of public perception certainly i think because of its location because of the nature of the school as well as you know the age of the victim all of these are factors that have changed the way in which we look at children in conflict with the law and it just cut across class you also mentioned the fact that a lot of the children who go into a jail then emerge as adults who haven't had any scope to sort of integrate with society and there is again a popular belief that an adult but like a almost adult minor that 16 to 18 group misuse the law to kind of get away with crime is there anything to suggest that that's the case i would like to point you that there has been evidence on uh, the fact that recidivism is much higher when you go into the adult system whereas when you are retained within the juvenile justice system and this is uh, evidence that has come from the united states which has had a system like this since the 90s so for us it's far more recent but you know when we we learn from the us we see that that's what their evidence has told them that children who are being pushed into the adult system the rate of them reoffending is much higher and that's our that it, it 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 just makes perfect sense because you know you are putting them into a system that is brutal i think the courts have also been alive to this question uh, as to whether the law is being used uh, at a you know very sometimes at a very late stage uh, to uh, you know make the case that the person was a child on the date of the offense and there have been significant case laws here on both sides where it has been found that yes this person was indeed a child but has been treated as an adult has spent decades of the prime of their life in jail uh that has happened at the same time it it has also happened that they have tried to fudge records uh so there is a check and balance i would say that if these cases of misuse do take place there is a system of check and balance one cannot get away with it because age is a factor that that has to be established before the jjb or any court of law this is probably like a you know common place understanding that people are abusing it but abuse is only when you will get away with it and it is very hard uh, for you to get away with something like this when there's a judge sitting there scrutinizing and you have to establish beyond reasonable doubt that you were indeed a child also the ncrb and all always come out with these reports of juveniles in conflict with law which is there any like trend where we seeing that more juveniles are getting booked or something or where that number say falling 
uh, juvenile crime is a very low proportion of overall crime taking place in india it has ranged from 1 to 1.2 and i think re- in recent years it has dropped to 1.1 is 1.1% of all crimes taking place in india and within that majority crimes that children in conflict with the law are involved in are property based offenses like theft like robbery so a murder and rape are again very very small proportion of their overall crime but because of the kind of attention it attracts uh, and the reporting around it it has been made to seem as if these crimes are on the rise and that more and more children conflict with the law getting involved in crimes like this there is another dimension to the sexual offenses because say if you look at the number of rapes that are that children are being accused of you have to be mindful of the fact that the pocso act does not recognize consent uh, among minors and significant proportion of these cases of rape are actually cases of elopement or consensual sex amongst adolescents where the boy gets booked as a child in conflict with the law and the girl is always seen as the victim so if you scratch the surface of these numbers you will find that we are really talking about a very very minuscule number of children and can we then not as a community as a society as government come together to invest and say let's address this in a different way we are hardly talking it will not be more than 5000 6000 uh, children in a year instead we have decided to change our entire law uh to respond to what we think is you know a uh, a growing problem of uh children committing brutal offenses let's look inwards let's look at our own childhoods and adolescent years the kind of decisions we made when we were 16 and 17 would we have made when we were 25 let's take anyone anyone right i mean the range might differ what our risk taking appetite has been but can we say that just because we are so smart we are smarter than our parents certainly we look like adults uh, we are capable of making better decisions or that we are capable of uh, assuming responsibilities that an adult can would we say that and why is it that every other right that you are entitled to kicks in only when you are 18 be it you know your ability to vote enter into a contract enter into a marriage all of this comes in only after your 18 but you are capable of assuming criminal responsibility like an adult before you attain 18 years of age today's episode was produced by jairaj singh sunai marathe and anuja singh for a daily spotlight on people ideas and stories that matter subscribe to us we're available on ty plus spotify apple google podcast and all other platforms of your choice for any news tips email us at tuipodcast@timesinternet.in